<laughs> hey, welcome, welcome to, to Beyond, Beyond the, the Test, Test Tube, a science, science podcast. Hello, everyone. So we're here to listen to the second part of the podcast with Dr. Eric Morant. So during the first podcast, we heard about new understandings on disease mechanism and the new hope for lupus patients to improve the outcome for their disease and better their lives. So in this second part, we'll hear more about the clinical research happening for lupus and how there is so much hope for lupus patients in the future. For the first time, when my patients say, is there any hope for me? And I've had to say no. Now I can say yes. To, to really quickly recap that then. So it sounds like the, the antibody theory is not widely held right now. The idea that antibody complexes start to aggregate and clog up capillaries. It sounds mm -hmm. instead that there's a pathway where the immune system will respond to double-stranded uh, DNA and, and then trigger an interferon response and then an, immune, uh, an, an inflammation response afterwards. Yeah, that's right. Where's the DNA coming from? Do, do you think it's innate DNA or do you think that cells are dying first or something to trigger the, the DNA response? Yeah, that's a great, another great question. The hypothesis is that there is uh, a poorly regulated apoptosis. Uh, that's a process of uh, programmed cell death when cells are no longer useful. Uh, the body has a way to shut them down and... Um, uh, sweep away the refuse. Uh, if that goes wrong and there's too many uh, cells dying, and if it overwhelms the ability of the cleaners to clean it up, then you have this cell debris lying around. And that includes um, nucleic acids um, that, that should be cleaned up. And if they're not, then they're um, hanging around. Uh, that might be why your immune system, because your immune system would normally never see uh, nucleic acid. It's in the nucleus, right? Your immune system doesn't see it. So if it does see it, it's going to see it as foreign um, and make antibodies against it. Uh, but that's still a theory. We don't actually know for sure whether that's the case. And probably there are many different ways to start the process that leads to the phenotype that we call lupus. For example, there are some rare inherited defects of DNA clearance enzymes uh, that lead to a buildup of a DNA in the cytoplasm. And that can trigger a lupus-like phenotype in children. That's called an inherited interferonopathy. And there's a gene called TREX that can have a single nucleic acid mutation, doesn't work anymore, build up nucleic acid, trigger interferon. Uh, other patients may have this um, apoptosis failure mechanism. Other patients may uh, have an aberrant response to a viral infection. It, I suspect that there are some of this diversity of lupus is because humans have made a mistake by classifying all these people under the same name. Uh, these disease names are human assigned. They don't have a pathological foundation. It's just some doctors in a room with a blackboard made it up. We made it up. <laughs> we might've got it wrong. Uh, so we may end up splitting uh, what we now call lupus into a series of biologically determined categories as we start to learn about it. Mm. Um, but antibodies are important. I don't, want to, I don't want your students to think that antibodies are not important. The entry point for the classification of lupus is, have you got an antinucleic acid? Yes or no? If no, you cannot meet the classification criteria for lupus. So antibodies are definitely part of the deal.
so you said interferon might be overexpressed or you know overproduced so is this a measure as well uh, when you do clinical trials or or of disease progression when you look at your patients and are there other measures interestingly enough uh, it's very difficult to measure the actual cytokines interferon there's actually a family of cytokines the type 1 interferons with many members they're actually present at extremely low abundance in blood there's a new technology called digital ELISA, which is extremely sensitive and can detect the presence of femtomolar concentrations of proteins. And you can find interferon if you do that. But a regular um, uh, uh, test will detect nothing. It'll be below the detection limit. However, um, what, we, what we know is that uh, we know interferon has been there because if we measure um, the expression of genes that are switched on by interferon, so-called mm. immunology, interferon stimulator genes or interferon regulator genes, they are easy to detect uh, and are very abundant. Uh, there's a famous paper from about 2003, which compares blood cells from healthy people that had had interferon added to them and blood cells from lupus patients that did not have interferon added to them and they look the same. Hmm. So if the lupus patient had so much interferon activity, it looks like a healthy patient cell that you put interferon onto. So um, this, is, this is clear. We see in 60 to 80% of patients that we characterize as having lupus, the presence of these interferon stimulator genes in the blood is associated with uh, more severe disease, more likely to flare, higher disease activity, less responsive to treatment. But strangely, and that in, in groups of patients, if you put all the interferon patients over there and all the non-interferon patients over there, they are different. But in individual patients, the level of those genes is actually not useful at all for right. determining um, how active your disease is today. It's more like it's uh, it's like a gain control. Uh, it sort of sets the baseline level. You can still vary up and down from that, uh, with, but interferon levels don't really change. Lupus, we know, comes and goes and waxes and wanes. That happens, though the interferon simulated gene levels remain very constant. They hardly change at all. So um, that's hard to explain. What it means is there must be other things that drive this time-dependent change in disease activity. Now, if we block interferon and bring the whole level down, maybe those time-dependent things can't do anything anymore. We'll see. We've only just started blocking interferon in lupus patients in 2021. Uh, so uh, we'll see um, what the impacts are over time. There's a long-term study that's going to be presented at the American College of Rheumatology later this year, which will be the first kind of long-term evaluation. And those results are embargoed. Um, but I think we'll be using interferon blocking drugs for quite a few years to come. Hmm. So if this works and, you know, I guess we'll see with time, then that's absolute progress. But there's still, there's st I mean, it's still a mystery to me why autoimmune disease would happen in such young people. and it's. Yeah. Why women? So are there yep. any kind of trails that you can follow? Why? Yep. And, and the reason for knowing why is trying to prevent or diagnose early. I don't know if you can diagnose this early because the variety of symptoms that they present with as well can be quite challenging in order to get a proper diagnosis of this is what yeah. disease is. So I don't know if that has a an accumulative factor. So. Yeah, look, the average delay between first symptom and diagnosis is two to three years for lupus patients because, yes, yeah, can be very uh, 
you know, if you go to your family doctor with a rash, you probably haven't got lupus <laughs> uh, or some aches and pains. It's probably not lupus. It's probably something else. So uh, very reasonably, it can take a while for the penny to drop. Uh, uh, that's unfortunate for the patients, however. Um, the blood test, the anti-nuclear antibody test is an easy standard clinical test that any clinical lab can do. Actually, we have a problem that test is probably ordered too often. And I'll tell you why that's an issue, Elaine. You're absolutely right. The immune system does change with age. Uh, and it changes in a couple of directions. You're more likely to make some autoantibodies with, with increasing age. And this ANA, anti-nuclear antibody, is definitely more abundant in people who are older. The antibody itself clearly isn't enough to cause disease. Up to 5% of people over 60 have an ANA but the incidence of lupus in people over 60 is very low. So it's not enough just to have these antibodies. You've got to have some other gate to go through to turn that into disease. Um, conversely, these non-pathological autoantibodies are quite uncommon in young people. And if you have these uh, autoimmune response in a young person, it seems more likely to be able to cause disease. We don't actually know why. In terms of the um, sex distribution, it's true for almost all autoimmune diseases that they're more common in women. Uh, there's a, obviously theories that it could be related to estrogen. Uh, oral contraceptive pill contains estrogen, makes no difference to lupus, perfectly safe. Uh, hormone replacement therapy given to older women is higher dose and that may make lupus worse. So there may be an estrogen factor but I don't know if you remember this, Elaine, when you were in the lab with us, we actually published a paper on arthritis model in an estrogen receptor knockout, uh, actually an estrogen synthesis gene knockout. And um, in some models, estrogen is protective, in fact, doesn't make it worse. So it might not be estrogen, but there's a lot of genes on the X chromosome and women have got more X chromosomes than men. Men have one, women have two. And there's a rare genetic syndrome called Klinefelter syndrome where uh, actually you have a two X chromosomes and a Y chromosome. Because you have a Y chromosome, your phenot body phenotype is male, but you have two X chromosomes. And those people, that's a rare condition and there's a bunch of complications people get. They actually have a very high incidence of lupus right. and, and they're not making estrogen. So it may be that there are uh, uh, X chromosome genes uh, you know, if you have two X chromosomes, you have to inactivate the genes on one of them. And failure of X chromosome gene inactivation may result in the overexpression of uh, X chromosome-related pro or anti-inflammatory genes. And Elaine, you'll remember, because in your glory days here at Monash, you made the world's first uh, knockout mouse for gills, glucocorticoid-induced leucine zipper. I it. <laughs> I ordered it, mate. <laughs> you designed it. You designed it. And you remember that that, that gene is on the X chromosome. Um, and that resulted in a lot of complications because the mice turned out to be infertile. We won't go into the detail there. But uh, that's an incredibly powerful anti-inflammatory gene. And it's on the X chromosome. Is that a coincidence? Or is that telling us something about the importance of the X chromosome for regulating the immune system? I think it's the latter. But yeah. We don't know. We don't have the answers. You know, what comes to mind, so, sorry, I, I probably should let you continue with this, but what comes to mind is this. So in my field, we often try and look at different species and there's this principle, I mean, comparative biology. So we, we look at many different species and we ask if one of those species is better suited to answer the question at hand. 
So there's this old Danish physiologist who said that for every question in medicine or in biology, there's probably one species that's just perfect for that, that one question. They've just got everything mm -hmm. you need They're you know, whatever. So I'm really curious about this because I, I guess for women, you have the two X chromosomes. And I think that in most cells, one of them converts to a bar body, like the X chromosome is inactivated and shrivels up. And I think in some species, you can get like a different expression of that bar body between mm -hmm. the two X chromosomes, or sometimes it's just not made into a bar body at all. So for example, I think mm -hmm. in a calico cat, the calico coloration is supposed to be related to the bar body, um, you know, shriveling up of one X chromosome or whatever. I'm curious if right. some sort of animal like that could help to explore lupus. I'm curious too. I never, um, never heard of that concept before, Michael. So I'm gonna make a note after this call. We should probably get in touch. Uh, yeah. In general, uh, uh, you know, as everyone knows, <clears throat> animal models are an important part of medical research. That's gotta be done under very careful control, ethics and um, avoidance of cruelty, super important. But uh, we still need um, those things in order to advance science and medicine. Uh, they have not served us well. Uh, in the field of lupus, but that's because mice are usually used because they're cheap and easy and we understand their immune system very well. Uh, haven't, haven't served us well in lupus, but maybe we're looking at the wrong species. It's an incredibly interesting point. I wonder, guinea pigs can come in calicos, right? Guinea pigs are small and they, I think they have calico coloration sometimes. I wonder if they can help. I don't know. I'm just kind of spitballing, but. And we're going to dive in. And this comparison between different animal models is something that we're not really looking at generally. And there mm. are such a variety of biology out there that sometimes yeah. we kind of miss uh, something that could be profound. So I think that's, yeah. a, that's a good point, actually. Mm -hmm. I agree. So Elaine, those mice that you designed and uh, that we had made and that you characterized in your studies here, we actually, uh, those mice who were deficient in this steroid related gene, if you let them age, and you were talking about age before, if you let them age, they actually get lupus. Right. Uh, and we published that a few years ago. They actually get uh, anti-nuclear antibodies and immune complex glomerulonephritis. So that was bringing together the threads of my research interests from steroid related proteins and lupus. And they come together on this protein called GILS. And so, uh, yeah, well, our lab is now <clears throat> uh, moving into a phase of trying to make a drug that uh, simulates the effects of gills. What's interesting about gills is it simulates the immune effects of steroids, but it does not have any adverse metabolic effects. And uh, that is this holy grail that I talked about before that we want in inflammatory pharmacology. It's a tricky molecule to try to uh, make a drug for, it's easier to make drugs that block things than drugs that are agonists. So I seem to remember using viruses and injecting viruses in order to make ourselves yeah. make the proteins. That actually worked in our rheumatoid arthritis model. So you, we know where to inject in a rheumatoid arthritis model, and that's the joint. <laughs> where do you inject patients or mice in lupus? Yeah. Yeah, I, I was reading an article uh, in, in The Economist, would you believe, a week or two ago about gene therapy. And uh, what you're talking about is gene therapy. You use the virus to deliver a gene to a place so the gene could be expressed and the protein is made and the protein does its job. 
and you showed that doing that with gills um, suppresses arthritis. Uh, uh, gene therapy, there have been breakthroughs in gene therapy and some of those breakthroughs do use viruses, very similar viruses, adeno-associated viruses are still used uh, and they can be tailored to deliver to a certain part of the body. The monumentally expensive and the actually literally the stoichiometry of just delivering enough uh, to have right. an effect in body-wide systemic, systemic disease is probably unsolved. That's just probably an unsolvable problem uh, for a disease, disease like lupus. I don't think there's a gene, gene therapy approach. I could be wrong, but there, yeah, there are ways around it. For example, if we can identify things that block gills production, then we can block that uh, because it's easier to make a blocker. Um, Actually, we know, we just published last year that interferon, the cytokine that we talked about in lupus, actually blocks the production of gills. Right. And so uh, in a lupus patient with too much interferon, they've got low amounts of gills, which is their protective um, uh, anti-inflammatory protein. So if we can restore uh, the normal production of that, then um, the immune system will calm down. Um, anyway, that's how we're thinking. And it's by, you know, trying different ways of interfering within the system that eventually you might find a way, right? So uh, the grant that you mentioned having where we we're fortunate enough to be funded to study ancestry related variation, we haven't even talked about this, but lupus is worse, more common and more severe in all ancestries other than white European ancestry. <clears throat> So right. uh, indigenous ancestries in most countries, Asian, African-American, Hispanic, more lupus and more severe lupus. Uh, it's usually characterized as saying that those have got worse, but that's a kind of Anglo-centric viewpoint. It may be that white Europeans have got less. It's just a different way of looking at it. Hmm. So uh, but those things are clearly inherited because they, they run in um, uh, ancestry streams. We know something about disease susceptibility genes for lupus because some big genome-wide association studies have been done. Uh, and what this project is to do is to try to find the molecular reason for why lupus is worse in people of those ancestries. So uh, Melbourne, as you'll remember, is a kind of uh, ethnic melting pot of different cultures. In my hospital, there's more than hundred different languages spoken by the patients. Um, you know, we use interpreters for like 30 to 40% of our patients. And it's one of the things that makes Australia a great place is that uh, kind of successful multicultural society. Uh, uh, there are many of them, of course, around the world. Another one is London. And we're collaborating with groups in London that have a lot of people from the Indian subcontinent, Pakistan, as well as from the West Indies. So there's a different ancestral mix. Uh, and in, in London uh, and in the UK and Cambridge and at the Wellcome uh, Sanger Institute, there's incredible expertise in genome sequencing. And our idea is basically to look at the gene sequencing and the RNA expression and all the protein expression at the same time. In, in the end, it's proteins that do things. They, are, they have to have RNA expression to be made and there has to be a gene in order to get to that. So there's a stack of steps. And we're going to, when I say we, <laughs> other people uh, in this team are going to do this incredible uh, analytical work 
to interlace between these different omics layers, as we call them, genomics, transcriptomics, and proteomics. I remember Michael Hickey, who you might remember from your time here, he had a great saying, which was, uh, if you don't know your hypothesis, get out of the lab. And I really like that. Um, <clears throat> but, uh, and we used to be quite critical of hypothesis-free research, just do stuff and see what happens. It's very inefficient. But when you can measure everything at once, and when we've got a lot of mystery, it's now fast enough and cheap enough. It's still expensive, but it, we can, with a, a large grant, you can do it. Uh, so that's what we're going to do. Um, and that will create, and actually it's all done by robots. Um, you send the samples off and uh, quality control is better when it's done on a, on a huge processing platform. Um, we've done a lot of studies in serum of lupus patients looking at cytokines. We probably never do that again in our own lab because it's more accurate to get it done by a, a robot at a company that does only that. So instead we're gonna be sending them away. So we don't actually even have to put gloves on, right? The whole thing will be done remotely and then this gigantic lot of data will come back and the challenge will be um, bioinformatics. Um, so your, your students who are listening, who are interested in biology and a future career in that uh, area, which should be strongly encouraged to uh, take a bio bioinformatics uh, subject. Uh, there is a world shortage of bioinformaticians, like other types of data scientists, they're all hired by Google or Uber or whatever. Uh, and bioinformaticians are hired by <clears throat> um, big pharma companies and you know get paid a lot of money because this is really hard, uh, challenging science, but it's where we are. It's a skill set that we need. So are there new targets that perhaps you've looked at what other companies are doing, which could also kind because of, because they have to go on what the science about the mechanism of the disease yep. actually yep. is. Are there other targets? No, that's absolutely right. So we've talked about interferon and the innate immune um, system. So there were previous attempts to block interferon that blocked the interferon molecules themselves and their effects were very minor. The drug that's recently improved blocks the type 1 interferon receptor. So it blocks all the interferons at once. And that was a profound effect. Interferons are made presumed predominantly by a type of white blood cell called a PDC, plasma cytoid dendritic cell. So there's now an antibody in clinical trials that addresses not the interferon, but the cell that makes interferon. Right. Then uh, interferon uh, is made, I talked about these toll-like receptors that, uh, that uh, uh, trigger the nucleic acid stimulation of interferon, you can make drugs that block toll-like receptors. Except that's and dangerous. Right, well, we'll see, we'll see. So you can be selective, you can block just TLR7 or 8, which yeah. is just in, in the RNA response. But look, I always say, we, as rheumatologists, we're, we're, we're suppressing the immune system for a living. These diseases are caused by unwanted exuberant activity of the immune system. We have to, the only way to do it is to suppress it. We have to carefully evaluate risk. I talked before about this drug anaphron lab that blocks the interferon receptor. There is increased viral infections in patients treated with that drug, especially herpes zoster, which is a virus. Most of mm. had, us have had chickenpox as kids. The virus is still there and it's suppressed by the immune system. If you block the immune system, it can be reactivated and cause a disease called shingles. Um, <clears throat> so there's clearly increased cases of shingles in people treated with this drug. Right. So uh, it's basically a risk benefit analysis. Uh, you can't have no side effects. 
but you certainly don't want side effects that are worse than the disease, right? So the risk benefit here is clearly in favor of uh, this, this drug. And that's the type of uh, very careful work that needs to be done for any new um, product. Then there's a whole lot of other kinases that are involved in signaling through the interferon receptor. I was just involved in presenting an abstract on a, a molecular blocks, a kinase called TIC2, which is a kinase that transduces the signals of the interferon receptor. And that looked amazingly effective in a phase two clinical trial of lupus. So there's lots of different ways into that pathway. And then there are other pathways. So we talked about antibodies being important and belimumab, the only other drug approved for lupus, uh, addresses B cells. And it's definitely effective, but its effects are, I'd say, moderate at best and also very slow. Uh, so there are other drugs that have been tried for B cells that have failed um, uh, for some of the reasons we talked about before, complexity and uh, difficult difficulties in measurement. Some of them just didn't work. Uh, there is a type of white blood cell called a T regulatory cell, which is like a good guy, uh, the T cell. It uh, slows down the, the bad guys and you can increase the numbers of those through a variety of approaches. Um, there are quite a few interesting trials about ways to do that. And actually in our lab, we're working on a way to do that in an, uh, one antigen at a time way. So if uh, some patients with lupus have a particular uh, antigen that they've got antibodies to, and we can switch off, we can make T regulatory cells that only address that and switch off the immune system only for the antigens causing disease. Now that should have no side effects. And so we're very excited about that, but that's, uh, that's at an early stage, but it does look pretty exciting. People are so creative, but I mean, it's good that um, these pathways are being dissected and new targets are being tried all the time. The, the, that is good progress, but you can't do that without patience, collaboration and samples uh, generally given. So that clinic that you have for lupus mm -hmm. must be a, a really huge part of the capacity that you have uh, for research yeah. as well. Yeah, well, look, we're amazed by our patients. They're, 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 they have this disease, but they also have, uh, you know, the depressing prospect of no breakthroughs for me. Uh, it's really tough, uh, but they are incredible. Like people generally, humans generally are pretty amazing. And these humans are really amazing. They're so stoic and survive and live their lives despite incredible obstacles. And they actually enthusiastically participate in research. They want the problem to be solved, not only for themselves, but for others. We actually just did a survey for this T cell therapy I talked about. We have to take a huge amount of blood in order to make these cells because they're very rare cells. We wanted to survey the patients to find out, would you even want to do this, right? If this was a treatment and they do. And their main reason is altruistic. Uh, they just want to make it be part of the solution. So they're really heroic in my view. Um, and we try to respect that. We're very respectful, of course, uh, of their privacy and all that sort of issues that are super important for managing research data. Uh, but I really just respect their generosity and participation. We're in this together. Uh, I'm not doing it for me, <laughs> we're doing it for them. So 
Was there anything, uh, Eric, that we haven't touched upon that you would have liked to perhaps elaborate a little bit on something that is a pet project of you, perhaps, that we haven't discussed? Well, the other thing I'd say is that, uh, you know, academia is not the only pathway for science, right? We, we're, we're all academics here, so we tend to think of that pathway. There are many other pathways, and I've been really proud to see people that I've worked with uh, go off and do other interesting things in industry. You'll remember people like um, Jenny Ralph Elaine. Uh, she's doing an amazing career now. In uh, She actually went into a medical writing role and then she went into the pharmaceutical industry and she's just a superstar there. And she's she'll tell you that she's using her science training every day. It's just mm -hmm. not doing it in an academic construct. So uh, I think we do need to help in, in, in encourage our, our students to understand that uh, uh, Academic research is great, but the idea that that's the only way to go with a science training is just nonsense. And that's kind of what I mean about being light about choices. There are other choices and they're all good. No one should be allowed to tell you that you failed if you didn't become a postdoc with your own lab. Uh, no, you didn't fail. You just did something else. I like the how you're saying it, that you know, we should also talk about biotech uh, as or industry as a way of making a great career yeah look the only thing i wanted to just to add is probably just partly repeating myself that the clinical measurement problems that we have in lupus they are simpler in rheumatoid arthritis because it's one one you know it's just arthritis you can measure it more easily but that doesn't mean the problems can't be solved in lupus they're just a bit harder mm. i think i had the advantage of starting out in ra research and just seeing the revolution there. And some of the people who worked only on lupus their whole career, just I kind of just didn't have the opportunity to see what was happening on the other side of the fence, just next door. So we've actually just brought some of those same measurement ideas from RA to see whether they'll work in lupus. And I'm quite sure they will. Um, you just have to do the work. These problems are solvable. Just, you know, do the work. So we've set up this big global collaboration to solve that lupus measurement problem. It's kind of in stealth mode right now because there's a lot of pharma companies involved, but we've got an abstract being presented at the ACR this year and we'll kind of announce this pro program. We just think these are measurement issues that a good scientist should be able to work out how to do it. So strangely enough, having been an RA person and also having been the basic scientist, I just bring those things to the lupus area and kind of go, well, there's a problem. Let's fix it. I don't know. Is that uh, naivety blended with arrogance? Probably. Until it works, right? <laughs> Let's do the work. Let's go. I think that's pragmatic. So thank you so much, Eric. It's been uh, a pleasure to catch up with you and to actually understand more what, what's going on about lupus and the fantastic breakthroughs and the hopeful future that we have for this disease and those patients. Yeah. Yeah, this was a fun conversation. Thank you for coming on. It's an absolute pleasure. Anything for you, Elaine, anytime. <laughs> Same to you. Take care, Eric. Listen to more episodes of Beyond the Test Tube every 15th of every month, either on Google Play or Apple Podcasts, or visit our website on Simplecast Beyond the Test Tube.